0: For me, I didn't think Stockholm was that big a deal. I I thought it was supposed to be a pretty safe place. And my husband shopped it to me as a safe place to raise kids, which for me was like, I grew up in Brooklyn, I'm totally fine. But, you know, he was like, you know, Stockholm is going to be, it's a good place
1: to raise kids.
2: When you have kids, suddenly you can walk on the same street and you just see things differently. And a whole new infrastructure emerges.
3: Welcome to Hear There Be Dragons. This season, I'm taking you to Stockholm. I'm your host, Jess Myers. Episode 7, Family. All season long, we've talked about Sweden's social safety net,
0: the ways that it was good. It's like this melt pot of beautiful things. If you go to Tensta or Husby or on the red lines to Fytia, whatever, you get to see a bit of the world.
3: And the ways that it was not so good. You've created like a huge block and then you copy that design and put that design next to... The
2: first one. The business idea is to, you know, minimize the renovation. And then a third one. And maximize. And a fourth one. Rent. So, like, all the areas look the exact same. We see this growing slumification process.
3: But you know who really benefits from social safety nets? Families. Walking around in Stockholm, you'll likely encounter a very distinct sound. Children. Unlike any place I've ever lived before, children in Stockholm are incredibly visible in the city. There are ramps on the stairs for new parents to push their strollers up and down. In the city center, after a serious row of building developments, you'll see a park full of kids screaming their heads off. It's also pretty common to see parents with young kids in tow at public lectures, museums, and even parties. Kids are a part of the social fabric in a way that I hadn't really experienced before.
1: In a, like an Anglo context,
4: when you say security, I think it has um it has a particular like kind of harsh meaning. In Sweden, the idea of security also has this maybe soft meaning about well-being. Like you feel secure in your person as an individual. It's a lot of emphasis on young children in school, so it has a pretty rounded idea that we want to feel secure in our.
5: Environment.
2: What do you do with a kid in a city? You go to the playgrounds? Do you, Would you go to the playground without a kid? Probably not. So there you have a whole infrastructure that you, you know, activate through this life stage. But in Sweden, there's also something else, something called the open preschools. So this is our, these are public spaces, open for everyone, with a kid below, I don't know, maybe six years old. or Usually it's before kindergarten. So when you have a newborn up to one and a half or two years old, parents for like, you know, everyday leisure, just doing something, go to these open kindergartens. There's coffee, kids can play with toys. There's a, you know, singing moment.
4: Um,
2: and these kind of infrastructures was, were invisible to me before I had kids but when having kids suddenly you see the city from this kind of infrastructure and you can go to the other places in other neighborhoods so these become places where you actually can get to know the city by by its people and you know when people have kids they are disarmed in a way so it, it makes also for an interesting place to get to know the city from another dimension and just by having kids you can discover these things
3: But families in general are a common political battleground. Family is a typical stand-in for tradition and the continuation of culture. What's good or bad for families is a regular political bargaining chip. From censorship to over-policing to immigration intolerance, all of these are commonly excused by the refrain that it's good for the family. The slogan for Sweden's far-right-wing party is even safety and tradition. So if families are so worth providing for, and so worth protecting, let's get specific about what they're afraid of. What do kids and parents feel they need to be safe in the city? This episode, we'll be discussing how parents and kids navigate their city, what's working for them, and what really isn't.
1: You'll learn an even more amazing truth, that for all the marvels of science, you will still be a busy homemaker. This million program home. This
2: million-program home neighborhoods modernist neighborhoods of post-war Sweden are really child friendly in terms of you know really being generous of playing grounds and you know small forests and, and you know this kind of traffic separated safe structure for children to play in and i wouldn't say that there is a particular area in Stockholm that is you know not friendly for households with children on the opposite i think Almost all uh, neighborhoods are quite fit for families with one or more children.
3: As we discussed in the last episode, there are still silent rules and expectations that young people and their parents have to make sense of in order to safely access Stockholm. You can see the subtle suggestions for family life threading their way through many aspects of the city, Even in the planning of the Millions program, you see that the accommodations encourage small families. More than three children or intergenerational living can make access to the city more difficult. And any attempt to make an alternative family structure is a pretty constraining proposal.
2: So the middle class norm in Sweden now has become like three kids. Then these maybe three room apartments uh, will turn too small and then you have to move and in the inner cities you know uh, bigger apartments are very expensive getting even more expensive and a lot of apartments which are cheaper but also you know in terms of statistics there are more smaller apartments um, but you know space is a, is a is a constructed thing right so in in Sweden we also have we have a lot of complaining and and uh, housing shortage but it's important to remember that Swedish housing offers, in square meters, the most generous housing, spatially housing to people internationally.
3: The norm, standards, and constraints of life in Stockholm is enough to contend with when you're from the city and more or less know what you're in for. But... As we've talked about in previous episodes, being a transplant or an immigrant can leave you at a loss for where to begin, which is even more stressful when you have a little one depending on
4: you to figure it out. We have a four-year-old kid, and there are like a lot of hidden rules that, that you don't know. And then suddenly you realize one day when you go to the preschool that that day is the day of X or Y, and you, of course, didn't have any clue about that. And, of course, yeah, I mean, that also has to do with the language. The language is an important barrier, so there are things that are said, but you don't understand. <laughs> so, basically, you show up one day, and everybody else is, like, uh, I don't know, like uh, disguised of something, and your kid is the only one <laughs> that doesn't bring it. These kind of things. Like, uh, I mean, they are basic, uh, but at the end of the day, that's what culture is made of right it's like a a series of things that you you know because you know that they are there they are part of how you live and when of course when you change your country you arrive to a new country those kind of things are difficult to get i I don't have any specific i mean the the preschool case like i think that the key the family world is very full of hidden rules that you don't know and you just have to learn um, like the way they dress. For example, here, of course, it's very cold and very dark, but, but it's still like kids go out and they spend a lot of time outside in the preschools. So they have like a, an entire vocabulary and technique of how to dress, right, to, to, to make sure that the kid is okay. So there is a lot of those things that you have to say, okay. I don't know. It's like I didn't know that you have to wear like, Two pants and like, then an extra like uh, waterproof full suit, right? And that, th- those kind of like things they are new for us. That's, that's all. I mean uh, I'm still like uh, I'm still in the process of getting included in the in the culture and, 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 and uh, connection and, and bring uh, growing my my feel of belonging that's that's part of, of arriving to a new country and and having a culture clash <laughs>
1: that's how it works My parents were are the first generation immigrants, so for them coming and leaving everything for them it was really important that their kids kind of got the best education, so they um, made sure that we went to another school. So we never really um, got to know too many kids in the area. Do I sound really posh? (laughs) No, not at all. Why? No, because we did we we really didn't interfere with too many like of the kids in the area, and Mm -hmm. yeah, you know it's just. I mean, it that's... sounds like really posh, but that's also part of my, my growing up with being like the second generation. And my parents like really put a lot of you know, energy. I mean, we were their future and their hope for why they came here. So in that sense, it sounds <laughs> super posh.
3: For many parents we spoke to, the idea of is my kid on the right path is a constant worry. But... To make matters more complicated, most parents also wanted their kids to have freedom and confidence when navigating their city. So how do you keep your kids safe while also allowing them some agency? We interviewed Magnus and Sonia together, their father and daughter. While Magnus remembers having a lot of freedom as a child, he wasn't so sure that Sonia should have the same in the center city.
6: I think it was it was a very kind of interesting situation. I mean, partly I was brought up in, I mean, I started probably to move along a little bit more kind of on my own in the beginning of of the 70s. So obviously the situation was a bit different. And also this part of of the suburb of Wellingby is uh, is basically uh, planned as uh, in a way that you don't need to cross any streets. So basically you can go very far without crossing a single street which meant that no one told us to stay around where we lived or anything. We were basically free to move along. And I remember we went with bicycles quite far, actually. And, uh, I mean, obviously sometimes maybe we, as in Sonia's case, kind of forgot about the time, and I don't know. But I, my parents was extremely relaxed.
7: When I was five, uh, my mother went out shopping, And I was alone at home and it was maybe the first time I was all alone um, at home. And uh, I watched a film and then it ended and I didn't know what to do and it felt like she'd been away for ages so I started to worry about her. Um, And so I decided to go out and search for her and I thought that she would be in this particular a shop or well, actually it's a place where you rent videos so I went out on my own and I couldn't open doors at that time I didn't reach them I reach up to these handles um, and also the doors were too heavy so I waited for persons different people to open the doors and then I would slip in through <laughs> and so I I passed away and it was not such a long way to the shop. Um, But I went there, but she wasn't there, obviously. Um, And I was not so worried. I just, okay, let's go home. I said to myself, like, I'll go home. She's probably there. And she was.
3: Were people, was she worried or were people around you um, on the streets sort of worried that such a young person?
7: I didn't think of that, but she was very worried when I came home. Like, what have you done? Where have you been? And I was like, I was searching for you. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and she said, don't do that again.
6: <laughs> this story is actually quite amazing because... Uh, Obviously, someone let her out in the street from the courtyard without thinking. That's like a five-year-old girl going out in the street, which is quite interesting. And uh, my partner called me, so I almost got a heart attack. And then we kind of spoke to each other on the phone, and then said, "Well, I can hear her. She she's singing in the street." <laughs> so everything was okay.
3: While it is a bit strange to imagine a five-year-old wandering the streets on their own, kids are, in fact, city residents. So what should their rights be in urban space? When we talked to Jelena, she filled us in on her research about
1: children's rights to the city. In the cityscape, in the urban public space, I mean, basically when they talk about socializing, they say they hang out. And unfortunately today, there are not too many places in the city where you can hang out without having to go into the commercial world, or it kind of requires an economic um, power, (laughs) unfortunately.
8: Uh,
1: But they are really, I mean, kids are really smart, and They're they're created, they find these solutions of how they can use, you know, even commercial spaces. There was this one group of of kids that told us, well, we go into the store chains and like H&M, for instance, and they take up one of the dressing rooms and the intention is not to buy anything or not even really just testing clothes for themselves, but it's more like a masquerade. Like, they dress themselves in, like, different fun outfits and so they The focus is socializing, not really the clothing. But what they say, it's warm. <laughs> and that's one of the big things they ask for. They also ask for um, Wi-Fi. They want to charge their phones, and they want a restroom, and they want it to be for free. So it's the the kids don't have to... I mean, this is in general, I mean, like, uh, after interviewing a, uh, a lot of kids, that's, like what we could kind of trickle it down to and it's not too much they ask for and still the city is not really able to offer them too many spaces of that quality.
3: For young children it seems pretty clear that they ought to be protected and looked after. But as Jelena was saying, things get a little more complicated for preteens and teens who face a world of freedoms and restrictions that can be difficult to navigate. We spoke to Jasmine and Anna, two teenagers from Fitia, about how they chose to find their way in the city. I cannot
5: be in like lots of other places because uh, like now in winter, for example, it gets dark. So obviously they want me home. Before like seven o'clock or something like that. Um, first, I, they didn't want me to go in Fitia school. Like here uh so they want they wanted me to go in get school, which is in Olby. but i di- uh, I made friends really quickly, so I didn't want to change school, and I talked to them about it, and they were okay with that uh but like places like Bredeng, mm, I don't think they would send me alone there, yeah, I don't think they would send me, not only Briadang like vorberg Wobe, those kind of places, like herhol and I can go whenever whenever I want. And um, uh, even like T.S. cent T I can go there too. Um, of course, my parents are pretty strict, but you know what? Parents are so, and I really can't go anywhere really far or like more than like like it's not supposed to be far. And like I'm like I'm like myself scared to go out. If it's not with friends, because my parents know my friends and they trust them and I trust them. So I don't I don't think I have like a time limit like Jasmine has like seven o'clock or anything like that. But if my parents say no, it's a no because you you can never be too careful. Like Anna said, she's scared to go out uh, by herself. I'm I'm not scared to go out by myself, but it's my parents that don't want me. So obviously I obviously have to respect it because I live under their um, feet or, I don't know, uh, yeah, uh, roof, yeah. Uh, so, um, but I'm I'm not scared. I could go to be, uh even alone because I'm a young woman.
3: For some young people, navigating the city is about more than just the insecurity of being a kid on their own for the first time. It's also navigating the scrutiny of other adults monitoring your behavior, for black and brown parents, modeling a claim to space for their kids is especially important.
9: The thing is, I, I mean, I still feel uncomfortable in the areas, as I always said, like as the and Lidingö and this kind of, like, tabby and uh, because uh, it's still really sort of, it's it's in, it's more like a physical reaction, like a reflex for me now, even though I'm like, turning 48 and I'm an adult and I I mean people don't lash at me in in the same way as when I was younger because I'm older so with that comes privilege as in age and as in mother I also want to send an example for my kid never to be afraid of whatever might be uh, happening you know being proud and showing her um, that this is our city.
0: It's very complicated because I, I want it to be a very just... I wanted my city to be accessible. I want my son to grow up in this city and know that this city is his no matter where he is, kind of. So when he was little, uh, he's still little, when he was smaller, I used to take him everywhere to museums, to parks, in this, within the city, just to like, let him know that he, this is his home too. And I did that consciously. When we went to certain museums, he was the only black child. And when we went back to Heselby, his uh, kindergarten friends never go to the city. So that was something like I had a discussion with some of the parents, like asking like what what do they do like you know during holiday or uh, weekend, and it was connected to both the socio economical aspect of it, but also access to the city, which was so tremendously noticeable within um, these areas. Like what do parents do with their kids in the city? So that made me really realize like okay, this city is. And it's also like it's a city that pretends like class does not exist pretty much all the time. Just like it doesn't really acknowledge race and racism, and but class is very much you know like as if like oh no 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 it's it's always uh, worse somewhere else. Meaning like maybe in other parts of the world. So oh here it's okay, kind of.
3: As wonderful as social safety nets can be. Sweden's insistence on certain norms and standards being the only reality makes it really hard for families who are not white Swedes to have their needs taken seriously. Family life is about contending with more than just children. It's about parents' safety, too. That safety gets complicated when navigating intolerance with your children in tow.
2: Sometimes with my family, we go to these garden states, like, there's these royal garden uh, parks outside just north of Stockholm. It's, I can walk there from my house and we could walk from here as well. But, you know, they're a bit in the periphery, but it's like a paradise setup. up uh, with greenhouses, with restaurants. and So I generally get very aggressive when I stand in a queue in, a, in such a place because I've never felt that... I never felt that awkward because people actually are so rude. They, you know, they bump into you, they push you away, in a way that uh, I, I never believed it could be so overt. I don't feel unsafe, but I just feel uncomfortable.
3: Does that dynamic change whether it's you by yourself or you with your family? Do you feel more or less uncomfortable if it's you alone versus you with your kids?
2: I think I, I feel. Uh, more alone when i'm alone because my partner is white so my kids are mixed so it's it's like they become my alibis like i'm safe but of course sometimes when i'm with my friends like if you are four dark beardy guys doing that thing you can you feel this kind of you know ungenerous mm-hmm. <laughs> attitude um, Of course, I can escape that with my money and with my style and with my ability to talk. But I know that a lot of people can't or won't. So there's a lot of, you know, aggression going on, even in a city, an equal city like Stockholm, around these, you know, subtle signal structures.
3: Is that something you talk about with your partner and with your kids?
2: Uh, my kids are too small, so we can't have these conversations. But with my partner, I try to like signal that, okay, I, I, I don't want to be here. And it's, some, it's sometimes it becomes this thing be- between us because she doesn't really feel it that way. Uh, and then I have to explain exactly how I feel it. And then it's like, oh, you're exa- exaggerating. And, and then you start to think and hesitate, and maybe I'm exaggerating. But, you know, I can't get rid of the feeling. And that's the thing with these, you know, kind of signal structures that you can always contest them. It could always be you. But you know, being you is always a it's it's a reaction. It's not like you're you're not born or you're not trained to have this feeling. It's a reaction towards something. Right? So even if it doesn't happen there and and then, it's it's still a structure that you react to.
8: So hmm. It's something I used to think about before I became pregnant, how I would feel moving around the city. And I wouldn't say it's changed right now, but uh, it doesn't really show unless you know what you're looking for. So I don't know how I'm going to feel once my pregnancy is more visible. Um... You know, um, the risk, once again, worst case scenario, becoming a target as some form of representation or embodiment of some culture, as these things are typically projected on bodies that are read as feminine um, and of color. Um, And what form that might take you know it can come in varying degrees but that is definitely something i'm aware of and my my guess is that the the later i progress into my pregnancy the the more careful i'll be and probably won't be as comfortable being out late as i am now and might might avoid high density areas like when people are out partying or when people have been drinking and um, and the likes.
3: Places that become unpredictable.
8: Yeah, yeah. And especially also um, that's uh, with it like once the child is earthside and outside of my body. I, that's definitely something I think about as well. Walking around with um, baby carriage and just that immense sense of vulnerability that I imagine I would feel. I think I'd be very conscientious of where I'm moving and and why like it has to be it has to be worth it
3: also so this what you were saying earlier about the possibility of being a, a target because you are a woman and because you are a woman of colour and what your pregnancy might represent someone who is uh, is intolerant or doesn't see those things as being a part of Sweden being a part of Stockholm Um, sort of becoming like a symbol of, you know, what does a woman of color who's pregnant in the city, what might that, what aggression might that target from an intolerant person who doesn't see that as a part of the city?
8: Right. Um, I mean, I would say it is a, um, it could be perceived as a representation of what's happening, like a development in this country that, racist people would not be happy about that this country is moving in the wrong direction that um, more of us are coming to exist in this space where we don't belong where we shouldn't be in the first place Um, and also uh, the process of humanization me you know this body of mine not only carrying life, but forming life, creating life, and giving birth to it, creating space for it to exist in this country, that is something that is perceived as provocative to somebody who doesn't believe in my right to exist. And as pregnant bodies are extra vulnerable, they become an even easier target. Unfortunately, we've seen Black women and people of color um, who are pregnant being attacked in this city not too long ago. And well, it's probably been happening for since forever, but we've seen it documented and spread and become viral in a different way more recently. And we've also seen that there have been no repercussions to that type of violence. So it's a very real threat that I think a lot of pregnant POCs have to find a way to relate to. And um, at the same time as I have my different strategies for being safe, I also don't want to spend too much of my energy hiding or becoming invisible because, that, because I have the right to exist. And so does my child and so does my pregnant body just as anybody, anybody else or any pregnant body has the right to exist. And that's something that I think we need to claim as well to change the narrative of what's normative.
3: Have you had discussions with your partner
8: about that vulnerability? Me and my partner haven't discussed this vulnerability yet. Um probably because it's early on in the pregnancy and um yeah, it doesn't show yet on me. Um my guess would be that even um even once my pregnancy would become more physically visible, he might not necessarily have those concerns. Um I think I'm I tend to be more of the one that, the one that focuses on worst-case scenarios but I also have the experience of having grown up in Sweden and he moved to Sweden 3 years ago so I have the lifelong experience of um being black in a white society and of being constantly subjugated to structural racism whereas that's a new experience for him and that's something that he has recently been Um, experiencing firsthand, learning how to verbalize and express and relate to and make sense of in a completely different way. Whereas for me it's like second nature.
3: Even with a safety net in place, the safety and needs of some families are not being met. For Louise, being a queer parent meant that a network was required to ensure that her family had the support that it needed. So she started a group with other LGBTQ families in her neighborhood.
10: Together with a lot of people, we started a network for LGBTQ families on the metro line uh, to Skarpneck. And we meet a lot in Bagamossen and in Skarpnek. And that means that we have like uh, social dinners. We have different kind of activities like barbecue or being outdoors with the kids or all different kind, whatever people feel like setting up actually. <laughs> so, so that makes the place more, I feel very connected to Bagamossen in that way since we arrange a lot of stuff there.
3: And how do you organize? Through social
10: media? Or? Yeah, most fr- uh, through social media, but we're also a part of RFSL as a membership group of RFSL Stockholm. What is that? It's the national organization for LGB- LGBTQ rights in Sweden. Mm-hmm. So uh, so th- on the Stockholm sort of division of that organization you can be like a membership group and we formed a membership group there so in that way the network uh, can be sort of applying for uh, public funding for example for some stuff that we want to do to keep fees down for example or meals free Uh, and uh, but still don't have to have sort of our own organization with like Uh, more administration and stuff like that.
3: While I don't have kids myself, I was really fascinated to see the amount of visibility and access children had to the city in Stockholm. However, in a society that contends with oppression and intolerance, that access is still not equal. Families like Louise's are organizing to create inclusive spaces, but there's still so much more to be done to protect families from the actual threats that children and parents face in public space. As much as I've enjoyed exploring family life, next episode we're on to something a little different nightlife. Join us next time for Little Saturday. We are produced with the generous support of the Graham Foundation for Advanced Studies in the Fine Arts and Konstnarsnamden, the Swedish Arts Grants Committee. Thank you to our senior producer, Adelie Pajman-Ponte, and our team of graduate assistants from the Architecture Department at the Rhode Island School of Design.
5: Kimberly Ayala
3: Nahera. Bilal Ismail Ahmad. Daniel Guerrero. Uthman Aloha. Fatu Kamara consults for the show, and Corey Jacobs does the music. Adrian Lilly does our sound design. If you're not a Patreon subscriber yet, come on, support your friendly neighborhood urbanism podcast and get some beautiful stickers, as well as exclusive mini-episodes. On social media, we're at underscore podcast, or you can check out our website and newsletter, all full of fun content like readings, maps, and videos. If you have a comment or a question, record it and send it to us at htbdpodcast at gmail.com. You might end up on the show. And last but certainly not least, rate and review us Five Shining Stars wherever you stream the show. It really helps other listeners find us. Okay, until next time. This has been Here There Be Dragons.
9: Beware of strangers.